Father, thank you for your good work in our midst. Not to us, but to your name be the glory, Lord. So we thank you for it, for your, your faithfulness to us and the way that you are using your word um, to bless many others. Lord, as we delve more deeply into your word in the book of Hebrews this morning, we pray that you would enrich and edify our understanding. Send your Holy Spirit to grant us that discernment we need to understand and to apply what you have taught us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to start out with a, a story from, uh, this comes from Brennan Manning in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. It goes like this. <clears throat> a man walked into the doctor's office and said, Doctor, I have this awful headache that never leaves me. Could you give me something for it? I will, said the doctor, but I want to check a few things out first. Tell me, do you drink a lot of liquor? Liquor, said the man indignantly. I never touch the filthy stuff. I kind of want to say it with a, a Scottish brogue. Liquor, I never <laughs> touch the filthy stuff. <laughs> How about smoking? Oh, I think smoking's disgusting. I've never in my life touched tobacco. I'm a bit, a bit embarrassed to ask this, but you know the way some men are. Do you do any running around at night? Of course not. What do you take me for? I'm in bed every night by 10 o'clock at the latest. Tell me, said the doctor, the pain in the head you speak of, it, is it a sharp shooting kind of pain? Yes, said the man, that's it. A sharp shooting kind of pain. Simple, my dear fellow. Your trouble is... You have your halo on too tight. <laughs> All we need to do is loosen it a bit. <laughs> We're going to talk about tight halos, about spiritual perfectionism. Um, and my assumption is that everybody is a perfectionist in some area of their life. I know some people are more so than others, but I'm just curious if we can have a moment of vulnerability and honesty. We're all friends. We're family here, right? What's an area of life that you are kind of a perfectionist about? Anybody willing and bold to share? Carpentry. Painting. Painting. <laughs> All right, getting it just right. Yep. Carpentry. Carpentry. Measure twice, cut once, right? Sewing. Sewing. So what? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be here all week. Mike, you want to be my Ed McMahon? You can just be there. Okay, good. Um, yeah, Esther. Organizing a meal. Organizing a meal. Want to get it just so. Being yeah. on time. Being on time. This is good that you recognize yes. this. Junk. Yeah. Junk. What do you mean? <laughs> You're a perfectionist about junk? Junk everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Wants to stay that way. Don't mess with my junk. Anyone else? What are you perfectionist about? Say again? Level and plumb. Level and plumb. Yeah, George. Uh, when you get into your 80s, you're not a perfectionist at anything. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you like it. Yep. Life has taught you not to good bother. Not good enough is good enough, right? Process. Process. You want the procedures, everything to go right as so. Good. Well, now you know the process of discipleship, so keep it to a T. Right? Anybody else? Yeah, Bill. I'm a perfectionist in what other people do. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> perfectionist in what other people do. Well, on that note, let's get into the Word to see what Bill needs to do. And, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. This is uh, a great text here with some deep, deep stuff about the teaching of our Lord Jesus. We're going to pick up in verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 7. But before we do, keep your finger there. I want to read Psalm 110 because we, it was mentioned last week. Psalm 110 in many ways is in the background and part of it will be in the foreground of this text. 
And so just to kind of set the stage as we dig into Hebrews 7, I think it's good to, to just go ahead and read this psalm and bear it in mind as we go. Psalm 110, the most quoted chapter from the Old Testament, most quoted in the New Testament or alluded to. The Lord said to my, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. This next verse is key. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He'll shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He'll drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So key is this, that the uh, preacher in Hebrews wants to use Melchizedek as a, a forerunner, as a picture, resemblance of the Son of God and our Savior. And he's going to continue this comparison as we go through our section here. So we're in Hebrews 7, picking up with verse 15. Let me read verses 15 to 22. It is evident, well, verse 14, it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Continuing verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, that is, being of the tribe of Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. All right, stop there. A lot to unpack here. The primary emphasis in these few, first few verses that we're going to look at today is a better hope, the better hope that we have in Jesus. But first of all, we talk, have to talk about the feudal hope that we have from the law. So number two on your handout, perfection by the law is a futile hope. So you'll recall that last week we talked about how God's heart for you and me ultimately is perfection. Not perfection merely in a, a kind of moralistic sort of sense, but perfection, a wholeness, flourishing, people of shalom, we said. So that ultimately we, what we're looking forward to is the resurrec resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. When we will be perfected, when all creation will be perfected after the pattern of Christ. Now, that perfection is our goal, and we, rightly do we seek it, but we seek it in vain if we seek it by the law. Now, this, I think, runs a little bit counterintuitive because we think, well, wait a second. All right, so now I'm saved by grace through faith, not of my own doing, not by works. But how am I going to be perfected, spiritually perfected? Well, this is where now it has to be about my doing. It has to be about me keeping the law. That's a natural kind of, of sentiment. But the scripture speaks strenuously against that idea that as in justification, that is, are being made right in God's sight, so also in our sanctification, that is our continued growth and holiness, 
These are gifts of God's grace, not of works. From beginning to end, it comes to us by his grace. I want to take a look at uh, just a couple of texts here briefly that reinforce this. So keep your finger in Hebrews and switch to Galatians chapter 3. In many ways, this is Paul's big theme in his letter to the Galatians, this notion of spiritual perfection and where it comes from, whether it comes from a gift of God's grace or whether it comes from our doing, our activity, our works of the law. He says this, Galatians chapter 3, picking up with verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, and this is the key verse, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? By which he means those works of the law. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul is pushing back on this idea that, okay, yes, you're saved by grace, but when it comes to your continued perfection and growth and holiness, well, now it's going to be by works of the law. Now it's just going to be through brass knuckle, getting down to it, your obedience, your activity, that's what's going to do it. What's the temptation? What, what's the appeal of that? Why does Paul have to speak so strenuously against it? And the preacher echo it here, that perfection is not going to come by the law. What's, what's the temptation for us? Why would we fall into that? Get you. Because there's a sense that you can control that. Okay. Like I can, if I work hard enough, I can achieve it. So it's very easy to understand, and I am somewhat in control of it because I can work harder. Okay, so that sense of control. Like I, I get to be in charge of my own growth, and I can, I can achieve it. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, Bob. Equality with God is something we might grasp. Oh, equality with God is something we might grasp. That perhaps if we do enough, try hard enough, doggone it, we might be just like him. Even though Jesus himself, he had that equality with God and he relinquished it. Yeah, Christine. It goes also to if I'm perfect, if I'm doing everything perfect, I'm a good enough person. Yeah. I can do that. Yeah. Yeah, and it happens even to us who know that's not how it happens, right? We know that we're saved by faith, not by works. And yet in the back of our mind, we end up like little Jack Horner. Stick, or is, is that the right one? Boy, what a, good, what a good boy am I, right? That, well, surely, okay, yeah, God forgave me by grace, but now he must love me and accept me because I'm kind of keeping up my end of the bargain. Right? Yeah, Cork. And we have wives to read. Okay. <laughs> Your wives are agents of grace, not of judgment. Don't worry. Yeah, Patty. Well, I was just thinking, if we, the flesh is against. Yes. The flesh is against, and so as Martin Luther said, we die by yep. or sin every day. Yes. And if we don't do that, then we can fall into prideful sure. uh, living. Yeah. And so we have to... It's a daily walk, and like you said, it's a daily death, right? Mm -hmm. It's a daily dying and rising once again. Gotcha. I think the rest of the world works that way, or it yeah. seems to work that way. The yes. The you work, that, and so it's, it's very easy for that to trickle down. 
transfer to our faith life that, yes. oh, I just got to keep working hard. Yep, exactly. I mean, there, there's very much an intuitive and something that we just imbibe from our lives in the world. And we have to say that when it comes to, um, well, what, what Luther would call like our horizontal righteousness, that is to say, our righteousness, our right living in the world, it is active, right? Like you have a, a job, you can't tell your clients, hey, I don't need to do a good job for you because I'm saved by grace through faith. They would say, okay, well, you're right. You don't have to do a job for me anymore. Right? <laughs> when it comes to our life in the world, uh, we, we strive to do our work well, to be faithful, to, to honor our neighbor, to carry out our vocations excellently. But when it comes to that righteousness before God, that it's a passive righteousness. It's wholly received from him from beginning to end, from birth to baptism to the end of our days. It's a righteousness that is received and not achieved. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, some of our striving is a product of the church's teaching. What are, you, are, you, are you pointing a finger at me now? Here we go. No, sir. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but the church can get impatient with wanting to see fruitfulness in a Christian, so it sure. will resort to the law. Yeah. I had a good friend who was in the stewardship department of the Senate. I'd written a devotion on we are co-heirs with Christ. Okay. So our stewardship became we own part of the kingdom. Yeah. And he debated with me. He says, if you teach that, people are going to get selfish. I said, so what's your anecdote? It was basically the law. Yeah. Yeah. So rather than appealing to who we are in Christ, he was reverting back to the law to get behaviors. To get behaviors. And we do that all the time with the church. Christianity is not sanctified self-help. Christianity is not just uh, a kind of baptized moralism that now God can keep shaking his wagging finger at you and me. It's a death and a resurrection daily. Yeah, ma'am. I guess in my mind, I am, in terms of pursuits of righteousness in this life, it seems to me it's a worthwhile pursuit in the sense that I'm not going to be a sinner in heaven. Right. Okay, so I'm, why not start now at trying to achieve what you are ultimately trying to gain sure. for eternity? But this is the, the key point. Tim Keller points this out, that um, this is the difference between the Christian gospel and um, religion, moralism, whatever you want to say. Uh, religion says, I do good so that I am accepted, accepted. Christianity, the gospel says, I am accepted and acceptable, therefore I do good. And that little change changes everything. It's about that motivation. It's about that heart. And you say, well, wait a second. My motivations are always mixed. My heart always still has sin in it. This is why, to Patty's point, day by day, we're confessing, right? When uh, Martin Luther says the, the very first of his 95 theses, when our dear Lord and Master uh, Jesus said repent, he meant that the whole life of the Christian is one of repentance. Day by day, dying to our, our sinful flesh and remembering I am acceptable to God, not because of my doing, but because of his doing on my behalf. And so you're right, Matt, it's, but it's, it's all about that motivation, right? Like, am I striving because I, I have this idea in my heart of hearts that I'm somehow not ex acceptable to God or that I'm going to score more points in heaven? Or is it flowing from a, a heart? Is it overflowing out of a heart that has been made full with the love, the unconditional love of the Father in his son, Jesus? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. The verse that I always go to is, it's God who works in you. Yes. To will and to act according to his purpose. Yep. And, you know, that proclamation of the word, yeah. you know, he works in us. And, and that's the life of sanctification. Yes. Because that's where the motivation comes from, mm -hmm. is Christ in us. Yes. You know, and, and so, yeah, always get back to basics. Absolutely. Spend time with Jesus. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Always getting back to basics. Spend time with Jesus. When you're in the company of Jesus, you realize and remember, oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm sick, and the great physician is here to heal me. Yeah, David. Pastor, I was just reading, and I really appreciate this. Uh, there's kind of three things that we recognize in our salvation. There is justification. Mm -hmm. uh, we are freed from the guilt and penalty of our sin. Right. Past. Uh, sanctification, and I appreciate it, this is freedom from the power of sin. Yeah, that's right. In baptism. And then glorification, obviously, is freedom from, somebody said, the presence of sin. So yeah. It's not going to be there anymore. Yes, that's right. So sanctification, coming to understand more and more what God has done for us, placing us in Christ, and then uh, responding from the reality yeah. that we're loved. Sin should not have dominion over us. Right. And even what we do, as Paul says later on, the wretched man that I am, yeah. I'm still delivered by the great Savior. Yes, that's exactly right. I love how you put that. And so much of sanctification, responding to the reality of who we are in Christ. And so you might think of it like this. It's like when you are justified and in your baptism, God gives you this treasure trove, right? Everything is there. Every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ, uh, it says in Ephesians 1. And so what is sanctification, the life of faith? It's this continued, joyous unpacking of all the ramifications and implications of my new identity in Christ. It's unpacking all of those treasures the rest of my whole life long. Until finally, like you say, when I'm glorified, when I'm with uh, the Savior in heaven, then there's no more presence of sin. It's been completely expunged from my existence. Even as now we still have to fight with the old Adam. So, yeah, it's, it's all of that taken together. Yeah, Hans? Um, I was just thinking about the, our Bible study we ever started, yeah. and it talks about uh, Jesus' baptism. Yeah. And going to the, out, out of obscurity to John the Baptist being baptized uh, and God speaking from heaven, yep. this is my beloved son. Right. And whom I was well pleased. Right. He hadn't done anything yet. Right. <laughs> it, it's God's unconditional love. Right. And it wasn't that he had cured all the lame or yes. all the blind or That's anything right. else. It's, you know, it, it's given to you. Right. And we have to live in that unconditional love. Like Christ is living in us. Yes. And that unconditional love is for us. Yeah, exactly. That unconditional love for us so that every day when we awake, we remember those words spoken. Oh, this is why in the Catechism, Luther says, when you wake up in the morning, make the sign of the Holy Cross, right? Make the sign of the cross. Why? As a remembrance that you are baptized. Why should you remember that? Because when you were baptized, that's when the Father spoke over you. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Bask in that belovedness, right? That's the, the life of faith, to bask in the Father's belovedness in you. Not because of anything that you have done or failed to do but simply and solely because you're his. Now, yeah, go out, child. Go out into the life of faith. Go into your vocations. Seek to do it well. Honor your neighbor. Serve your family. Spread the word. But do so out of a heart 
knows and understands that you are acceptable to the Father fully and wholly and unconditionally in Jesus, and nothing can change that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yeah. Preaching again. We're preaching again. But then... <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> David's going to pass the hat. But we can't hear it enough. We can't say it enough. We can't believe it enough. Truly, guys. Truly. In this life, you can't hear it enough. Like Esther said, it's always back to basics, day by day, day by day. Yeah, Margaret. Was John the Baptist baptizing before he baptized Jesus? The question is, was John the Baptist baptizing before he baptized Jesus? Yeah, I mean, as far as we can tell, yeah. I mean, they were coming to him. Like it. Yeah, uh-huh. They were already coming to him. Yeah, I mean, that's you know, kind of to our point last week, right? Why it's so unnerving for, for John. Like, Jesus, what are you doing here in the place of sinners? But that's who he is. That's why he, that's why he came. Was that a Jewish custom? The baptism? Yeah. Well, certainly rites of purification. So the um, notion that there would be a kind of rite of purification as you're leading a new life. Incidentally, the kind of baptism of, that John practiced is the way that some Christians today understand Christian baptism. That it's more of a symbol of a break from the old life and a start with the new. It has that, but of course, it's much more than that, right? It's not just a symbol, it's a sacrament. It's an a, a affecting of God's grace given to us. Yeah. All right, so we have then this better hope in Jesus. It's not from perfecting ourselves by our law keeping. Instead, it's a gift given in Jesus. So let's unpack this a little bit in those verses. Why we have a better hope, how we have a better hope. So number three, we have a better hope by means of Jesus' indestructible life. Say, indestructible. Indestructible. Is that a sweet word or what? Oh, I love that. And the, the Greek word is akataluo. Kataluo, uh, the preacher, I don't know if he coined the term or not, but kataluo was a common word uh, which meant to be subject to destruction or dissolution, rendering something apart. But now he just adds an A at the beginning of it, a kataluo, in order to negate it, saying that now, in Christ, he's no longer subject to destruction or dissolution. Turn real quick to Romans 6, um, which uh, goes right along with this and has a great phrase describing Jesus in his resurrected, glorified life. Romans 6, this great chapter on, on baptism and its implications. You heard part of it last week. Verse 9 says, well, actually, go back to verse 7. goes to what David was saying a moment ago. One who has died has been set free from sin. That power no longer is over you. So if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That last verse there, verse 11, ties into what we were talking about. That the life of faith, the life of sanctification, is a, a reckoning of ourselves. Uh, adding it up and realizing, oh, I'm dead to sin. I'm made new in Christ. And living in that reality. But I want, what I wanted to highlight for you is in verse 9. Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Get this. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death has been rendered toothless through the empty tomb. It no longer has any power. The jurisdiction is not there anymore. Right? Jesus is now Lord over the grave. In Revelation 1.18, it speaks that he is the one who holds the keys to death and Hades. Right? 
We talked about this back in chapter 2 because in this life, who is the one who keeps us subject in slavery to the fear of death? Satan tries. Satan. Satan tries. That's what he wants to do is to keep us under his thumb by jangling the keys of death and saying, hey, you're going to shuffle off this mortal coil. Be afraid, right? And Jesus is like, give me those. He's the one now who has the keys to death and Hades and says, fear not. Fear not. Death no longer has dominion over him. So we have a better hope by means of Jesus' indestructible life. Next, number four. We have a better hope in that Christ enables access to God's presence, right? So it says that, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And you remember, of course, the torn curtain, which has many significances, but uh, one of the, the key ones is that now that curtain of the temple is torn, now you and I are able to draw near to God through Christ Jesus. Not through the mediation of priests, but there's one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus the righteous. He is the one now who stands between us and the Father, and he is your advocate with the Father. Um, we saw this, if you want to just flip back to Hebrews 4, that last verse of Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So not to be compelled away. I think back with um, our dog Theo turns to today. You know, I, I have so much spiritual insight from Theo, but I'm actually thinking today about um, our old dog, Juno. May she rest in peace. And Juno, when you guys got to know Juno, she was the best dog that ever there was, right? The most docile, sweetest dog. And it is true about her, but when she was young, like every puppy, she was a pain in the butt, right? <laughs> um, and when she, when she was young, and I was a, a lot younger too, and I could get a little bit angry and impetuous and sometimes you know she would bark or do something i didn't like and i would whap her right whap her good i'm not proud of this um but i noticed after a while when i was convicted of it i would go to pet her and she would shrink back away from me she'd come to learn that to draw near to my master means that i'm going to get a whooping i think for some of us we have the same understanding about God. And I don't, I'm not here to be an armchair psychologist. Why do you have it? It's from your own dad or whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is, I think that for many of us, we have in our heart of hearts a sense that I don't want to draw too near to God because it might just mean judgment. It might just mean a woman. Hear me and understand that in Christ Jesus, we can with confidence draw near to God and know that you're not there to get swatted, but instead to be patted, to hear again, this is my beloved child. That doesn't mean that there isn't discipline in the life of faith. We'll hear more about that later in Hebrews. As uh, the preacher will say, God disciplines those he loves. But that's very different. That's very, very different from just a, a sense of, I need to live in abject fear, servile fear, never knowing how is God going to receive me or love me or care for me, right? You can with confidence draw near to him because Jesus has already extinguished the Father's wrath on your behalf. Draw near to him. The curtain is torn. Yeah, Ellen? Sometimes I like to think that the Father, it's just not even a choice. He cannot be in the presence of sin. 
And so it isn't even judgment or thought, it's just what is. Yeah. And you want to cleanse in the blood of Christ. That's right. Sins are washed off of yes. us. We can now enter in and that inevitable consequence is erased. Yes. That's exactly right. We're right to think, well, I don't know if I can come before God because I'm so sinful and unclean. But understand that when we come before him, he sees you in Christ. Because but you have been clothed with the pure, spotless righteousness of Jesus. So that when you come before him, he's, he sees his son. He sees you through those cross-shaped lenses, right? So he sees you pure and spotless. You're his pure, spotless bride, says in Ephesians 5. He presents you to the Father in that way. That's, that's who you are now. Yeah, Carla. Rick Swindoll says God's cross-eyed. God's cross-eyed. That's good. That's <laughs> exactly right. That's exactly right. So we have a better hope because of Jesus' indestructible life, because of that access to God's presence. And then thirdly, number five on your handout, we have a better hope because it is guaranteed. Say guaranteed. Guaranteed. It is guaranteed in Jesus. Go to Romans 8. Oh, you're thinking about memorizing scripture or that's something I, I ought to do. We did when we were kids, learning scripture by heart. I'm going to give you a passage that's a great place to start. Romans 8. First few verses here. Even just the first verse, but we're going to read verses 1 through 4 of Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And get this, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now what's Paul saying here? He's saying that only a heart that has been liberated by the love of the Lord is actually even able to keep the law. And it does it not through just nitty-gritty obedience, it does it because it's been set free by his grace. And now it's just walking by the Spirit and the power of the Spirit in day-to-day -day life, right? There's no condemnation. The law was weakened. It wasn't able to do it. But Jesus has done it for you and for me. And therefore, it is guaranteed. It's guaranteed by the blood of the Savior. He's made that oath and made that promise in him for you and me. All right, so for these reasons then, as the preacher says, we have this better hope. There's better hope in Christ Jesus. Let's turn, we got about 10 minutes, to verses 23 through 25 of Hebrews 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Y'all, this passage is just dripping in gospel good news. I want to just meditate on, on all of it um, and just ruminate on this a little bit. So in this movement of, of his, his sermon, the preacher is talking about how Jesus surpasses the former priests, that priesthood. The former priests were many in number, but now there is one priest, our Lord Jesus, after the or order of Melchizedek. And he surpasses the former priest, first of all, 
because he holds eternal tenure. <laughs> Jesus is an office holder with, that's permanent, never to be supplanted, never to be surpassed. He's everlasting in the presence of the Father. Uh, the word there that's translated as permanent as the, the Greek word aparabatos. And notice that a, that a at the beginning of it. Once again, he just kind of adds an a. Parabatos means to pass down, to hand over, as it would be with the priests. There would be a changing of the guard, right? And now he's saying this, there, it's a, a change list of the guard because now Jesus is the one who stands sentinel in your place and mine, okay? So now he is there permanently and thus he surpasses the former priests. But even more than that, Number seven, Jesus surpasses the former priests because his salvation is exhaustive and eternal. Exhaustive and eternal. I use that phrase to try and encapsulate the single word here, beautiful word, uttermost. Let's hear you say uttermost. Uttermost. Uttermost, y'all. Not talking about cows, okay? <laughs> uttermost. Exhaustively. The, the Greek word here is a pantales. Pantales has dual meanings. It has both a temporal meaning, which means for all time, and also a spatial meaning, all-encompassing. So you picture him, Jesus as Lord. Well, what's he Lord over? He is Lord over all things. His reign and rule expands and extends over the whole universe. But he's also the, the king and the Lord for all time. And thus... He is able to save to the uttermost as our mediator, exhaustively, eternally, in our stead. Passages like this are the things that just absolutely, not just put the lie, but also to show how weak and futile anything we think, well, okay, I know that God loves me, but maybe I need to kind of meet him halfway, right? It's like, you guys, uttermost, when he says uttermost, he doesn't mean, yeah, right? That's not, that's not a good translation of the Bible. God's love for you is, yeah, no, to the uttermost, exhaustive, eternal, all-encompassing. I mean, in many respects, this is basically my job, is to do the old, uh, you know, what's the guy's name in uh, Back to the Future, where I just grab you and say, all right, hello, McFly. Hello, McFly. To, to give you noogies over and over again. What's the guy's name? Somebody help me. George. Not George. 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 Yeah. Biff. Thank you. I'm thinking Buzz. Yeah. It's Biff. In this analogy, I am Biff. All right? I'm willing, to, I'm willing to abase myself as Biff. But this is, this is really like the whole life long. It's, it's God drilling it into our ears and into our hearts and souls to hear and to receive and to believe you're beloved, you're acceptable to him through his son Jesus. He cares about you, he really does. You know, to call us back to repentance. And when he calls us to repentance, what is that? It's to remember who we are, right? It's to remember who we are. It's not a kind of penance sort of thing. Like, okay, yep, now you're going to go through the paces. We'll see if I, I let you back. I'll put you on a, you know, a, a, a faith probationary period. But no, it's, I mean, it's the prodigal son, right? It's the father going out to meet the son, even before he's able to give his canned apology speech, throwing his arms around him and saying, I'm just so glad to have you back. Uttermost, uttermost. And not only that, preacher's got more here for us. Consequently, verse 25, those, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them, for you, 
Um, and so here, this speaks a word of grace to us when, for those of you who are perfectionistic in your devotional life or in your prayer life because you think, ah, oh, I'm not praying enough. I'm not praying well enough. I'm not praying long enough. I'm not praying often enough. Are all those things true? Sure. It's fine. Whatever. Uh, but to recognize the more important truth is that Jesus continues to live to pray for you. And so the, the littlest intercessions and utterances of the heart, the groanings that words cannot express, Jesus takes those before the Father. The Spirit of Jesus is able to translate that before God's throne and offer them up. It's the incense of the saints that we hear in, in Revelation. We shouldn't live under this, this notion like, oh gosh, if only I could pray a little bit more, then things would be going better for me. Or, you know, it's because I'm not praying enough that God's just kind of showing me, oh, see, this is what happens. Why do we need to pray? Why do we need to pray? To recognize that we need God's help. Because he's our Abba who wants to hear from us. And it's in prayer we reconnect to the Father's heart. Right? We reconnect to the Father's heart to receive it and to believe it. So Jesus lives to intercede for us. Yeah, Pam. I think that, maybe it's just, you know, I think we as uh, just sinful people because of the broken world we live in, mm -hmm. we are harsh judges on ourselves. Sure. And so we play that scenario over and uh, that's not the scenario that God plays. That's, a, that's exactly right. For us and I know as a, as a former teacher of even kindergarten or first grade you didn't let the children judge one another. Right. Because it would be. It would not go well. <laughs> yeah. Put them in the chair for That's right exactly. Years, Hang them up. hundred years. <laughs> He painted outside the lines. Ah, to the death penalty. So you never let the children judge one another. Well, and the teacher right. understood the whole situation. So yes, I think we're harsh judges. We are harsh judges. Well, we all are. Well, but you've raised an important point because if you live by the law, you die by the law. And really, there's two responses to it. On the one hand, we become harsh judges of ourselves, and we despair. Because we think, I'm never keeping it enough. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never up, holding up my end of the bargain. You despair. But there's a flip side to that, which is you start to grade yourself on a curve, and it leads you not to despair, but to its opposite, pride, right? And you've got to realize these are just two sides of the same coin. These are not diametrically opposed things. It's just some days we deal with pride, some days with despair. Both of those reactions have the same root cause, which is a living by the law. So we think, oh, you know what? I'm a pretty good guy. I'm not as bad as Bill, at least. And so I'm, you know, oh, I must be pretty good. That's not true, by the way. <laughs> or you, you, we're harsh judges to ourselves. We beat ourselves up. I'm, I'm not good enough. Why aren't I a better person? But both of those are the same side. We live not by law, but by grace. Right? But I think that's important, within the, at least within the Missouri Lutheran Church, that we have a balance, that you have law yep. and you have gospel. Right. And I think it's so important to leave that service with the gospel. Yes, yeah. That, that counters. Yeah. Counters us. It's the antidote, in, yes. Imperfect people. That's right. But as your point is that our... Lord and Savior sees us through Jesus. That's exactly right. 
He's yeah. cross-eyed. <laughs> I tell you, hearing an, an overbalance, I heard a professor from Belleville, oh. Twins are good days, just say that Belleville, that the pendulum swings way to the right yeah. and swings that, but you see Christ the best from the center. That's right. And it's a balance. It's a balance, for sure. Um, with this notion of Jesus living to intercede for us, um, there's some great hymns that speak to this. Uh, so I've got a couple of verses here. It's in small print. Um, but why don't we end with this, actually, and we'll pick up with the, the last part of, of chapter 7 next week. So this is verses 2 and 3 from I Know That My Redeemer Lives. And you know the tune because it was the same tune as our last hymn today. Duke Street. Duke Street. All right, so let's sing it together. He lives triumphant from the grave. He lives eternally to save. He lives all glorious in the sky. He lives exalted there on high. He lives to bless me with his love. To plead for me above, he lives my hungry soul to feed, he lives to have.